Life is messy and hard and full of opportunities to learn and grow. I'm Mandy Jankis of the Kindred and Brave Project. I believe that our humanness makes us kindred and that sharing our stories makes us brave. It's about heart-first, human-centered, story-driven connection. It's about community. And it's about time. Welcome to the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to our second episode that highlights friendships. Now, we are learning a lot about how to be a good friend. We're going to dive into some more of the things about ourselves today that influence what we look like as friends to others and how we can improve upon that. And remember, the reason that we're talking about that revolves around this concept that I brought up a few episodes ago that in midish life, our friendships are changing and we need skills to go into how to become a better friend as well as how to create more friendships and build community. Because as we go into this part of our life, our schedules are changing because of kids or caretaking responsibilities with our parents or ever-evolving career opportunities. So we as a whole are changing and looking at our friendships differently, I think, in this part of our, our lives and reminding ourselves that they don't just organically bloom and we have to put in some effort is such an important reminder. So the book that we'll be talking about today, I found because of two amazing podcast episodes that changed my life on We Can Do Hard Things. The author of this book is Marissa Franco, and she wrote a book called Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. The title immediately seduced me, I have to say, like it was very persuasive. So this idea of just platonic love, right? And she goes into describing all the ways that our friendships serve as a foundational resource for keeping us healthy. So going beyond the idea that the only relationship that we need as humans in our life is romantic love. She starts off the book by saying people today struggle with fostering and maintaining positive, mutually rewarding, and genuine friendships. It's a challenge that impacts all facets of life, including work, school, and mental and physical health. And as I've shared with you in some of the episodes that we've recently had, as we grow older, as we perhaps change jobs, change locations, our children change schools, we become planted or popped into these new communities where we are or can be known as, you know, what we used to call the new kid. And so there is kind of an unknown territory And I think it can feel really scary when you're in midlife because I think a lot of us think I've been there and done that and I have my people. And the truth is you probably do have your people. And if you're like many of us, even though they're your bestest friends, you probably don't see them as often as you see some of the parents that are on your kids' sports teams. So this is why we're we're here and we're talking about this. I love this book because she is also a professor 
and a psychologist and her approach to writing not only includes this knowledge right or instruction but she also really demonstrates ways that we can practice or experience the things that she says will help us grow better at friendships or in friendships and this reminds me so much of how Brene Brown says that we can't do vulnerability alone so vulnerability is the foundation here of our lives we have to learn how to embrace vulnerability and just like in any other facet of our life it takes vulnerability to grow friendships so this means that again friendships actually take work and i think that's something that we forget we come in and think about how we found our first friends really organically in school and many of us still hold those dear and i'm going to challenge you in today's episode to think about some of the people that you still call your your dearest friends or your best friends and think about what they're still bringing into your lives into your existence how they're helping you continue to grow how they're continuing to challenge you as a person right think about what their presence means in terms of your mental health i've shared that i have a best friend who i would consider a sister and there have been some huge ways that our friendship has solidified in the last four years one of them i talked about in an earliest episode when my mom was being admitted into hospice care and i was in our kitchen and she was upstairs in bed She had just given me all of the rights to do all of the signing. My dad was nowhere to be found. My best friend showed up, literally so pregnant, I was scared she was going to have the baby right there. And she took notes and she asked questions when I couldn't get them out. So these are life, big life moments where Our friends show up for us that actually alleviate some of the pain or distress that we're feeling. So they don't just make our lives better, but in these really hard times, they keep us from hurting or falling into depression, right? Scientists have found that of the 106 factors that influence depression, having somebody to confide in is the strongest preventer. So our people matter. More quotes that have come from this research and really, really gone, I think, viral since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic tell us that the impact of our loneliness on our mortality is akin to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And that is still, I've read it and I've listened to it over and over again, and it's still a really shocking fact to me. So in this book, she starts by talking about how our ancestors have lived in tribes, or as I would say in intercultural terms, more of a collectivist culture where responsibilities for all of us were shared. So friendship then means that it takes a community for all of us to feel whole. Now, if you're a woman and you've ever had a child, you probably have heard the phrase, it takes a village. And I think we have the best intentions and often 
early days of motherhood can be some of the most dark and lonely days that a mother knows. Maybe there's a couple of weeks where people show up with food or they offer to maybe do some things to help out like walk a dog or deliver some groceries, but then usually we're left on our own and that can be really difficult. So we choose our friends. As human beings, this is so cool. Our friends are people we get to choose. And we usually do this because of shared values, because of how we feel around them, because of what we feel for them or about them. So for example, we admire them. A lot of times there are admirable qualities that we look at in people and we think, gosh, I really want more of that in my life, or I love how he or she inspires me to be more like this. And of course, we choose people based on how much we can trust them. So we talked about this in the last episode, and we'll keep building because we know that now there are these two foundations, these pillars that friendships need, vulnerability and trust. So the meat of what I want to talk to you about from this book comes from chapter two. And this chapter in Marissa Franco's book is called How Our Past Relationships Affect Our Present. And here we are again. I'm asking you to do the work. I'm asking you to remember that as humans, we go through our life and we have a lot of baggage. And this is what this chapter means for me, I think. We have to be able to reflect back on what we've gone through in our relationships, how they've impacted us, to be able to understand who we are as a friend, who we choose as friends, how we maintain our friendships. So she talks about attachment theory. And attachment theory is something that got really popular of A few years ago, there was a book that came out called Attachment, and it goes into looking at how understanding your attachment can help you understand how you choose your romantic relationships. Dr. Franco has taken this theory and helped us to understand that it also impacts our platonic friendships. So she states that attachment theory helps us understand why people interpret the same events in a friendship so differently. So what the hell is attachment theory? I love going to the women for our research. And I think not enough credit goes to Mary Ainsworth, who in the 70s expanded upon this theory and its original work because she brings up these attachment styles. So basically, attachment is the lasting psychological connectedness between human beings, right? In the study, researchers observed children between the ages of 12 and 18 months as they responded to a situation in which they were briefly left alone and then reunited with their mothers. Based on the responses the researchers observed, Ainsworth then described three major styles of attachment. And these are the ones that Dr. Franco uses in her book. So I'm going to give you a brief overview, and then we're going to talk about why they matter. There's the secure attachment style. 
These folks assume that they are worthy of love. That is their general assumption. They go around the world assuming it, expecting it, and trusting that others can give it to them. They often give people the benefit of the doubt. They are open, vulnerable. They speak up. They ask for what they need. In Brene's research, she would call this the wholehearted. These are people who live wholeheartedly. Then there's the anxious attachment style. I don't practice these episodes before I talk to you, but I'm smiling awkwardly right now because this is me and it feels like a vulnerable share. The more that I worked on this with my therapist and learned about these styles, the more I could see various examples in my own life. So I'm, I have that kind of uncomfortable smile on my face right now and I'm half raising my hand. So anxious attachment styles, the basic assumption is that others will abandon them. And so what we do behaviorally to keep ourselves from being abandoned is that we can be overly clingy and overly self-sacrificing. So not great characteristics for a friend. But before we get into the last style, I want to assure you that the reason that we're talking about this is because attachment styles, while they are um, kind of there, they're, they're built or baked into us, we can certainly work on them. So we can build new new neural pathways to challenge our beliefs about others, to challenge uh, our emotions by uncovering what we're feeling and looking at why. And then of course, using those two things to change our behavior. So if you're listening to this and have a feeling like I did when I first heard it of sinking into yourself, please know that there's no shame here because these are things, and this is why I love communication studies, these are things that we can work on and grow. The third style is known as avoidant attachment. And these folks are often also afraid that people will abandon them. But the way that they go about this fear is instead of worrying about this, get it, instead of being anxious, they put those boundaries up. They put that arm out and they keep others at a distance so that they can all together avoid vulnerability and they often leave relationships prematurely. Okay, so a lot of the research says that our attachment styles are developed very early in life. And this was a challenging thought for me because The explanations look at how parents respond to you when you are an infant into early childhood. And so I thought back and the idea of feeling anxious because my parents didn't attend to my needs quickly enough or at all didn't fit for me. So while working through this, I want to share a story with you about where my anxious attachment brewed from. The impact of your parental guidance doesn't just come from how your parents parent you. You are also in relation to how they are with each other. 
And my parents had what I would consider a tumultuous marriage. Some of my core memories include very large arguments. I can remember as far back as being in first grade and sitting at the table while they were arguing kind of past me and trying to interject in saying, but dad, if you would just listen to mom and try this or mom, don't be so mad. So as a small child, I was putting myself in this situation where I was trying to be a fixer. And how this manifested into an anxious attachment style for me was due to the fact that throughout my life, whenever there were these arguments, the word divorce always came up. And that was such a big realization for me when I got older. So of course, I worry that people are going to leave me because the two foundational people in my life, whenever they hit a challenging spot in their relationship, threaten to leave each other. So again, as you think about these styles and you start thinking about where you fall on this spectrum, and when you When we finish this episode, I'm going to have you hop into our community. I'll share some resources, both from Dr. Franco and other areas where you can take kind of an attachment style quiz, right? And it will ask you questions about your parental relationships, but it doesn't stop there, okay? So Dr. Franco says, once you have some experience in a peer group, Initial expectations are going to give way to expectations based on the actual experiences with your peers. So if none of this is hitting, so what I mean is if you're saying, I don't really, I can't think of any big core moments in my childhood that have to do with my parents that might influence how I act now. Research also shows that attachment style can be influenced by your peer groups. So many of you may have seen the movie Inside Out. It's one of my favorites because it's about emotions. Um, What a freaking delight this movie is. I could teach an entire communication class using this movie. And there's a sequel coming out, which is very exciting. So for those of you who haven't seen it, there are these certain, you know, quote, core memories that are shown in the movie in a very vivid way that trigger permanent or semi-permanent foundational pillars of our personalities. So this character goes through life and there are core memories that we watch happen to her. Some of them are what we would consider positive or good or feel good memories and others are hard or negative core memories. So research on mental health issues show that memories, particularly traumatic ones, do play a significant role in our psychological foundation. So I want to share another example that may hit and help you understand how these styles were influenced or impacted by your peer relationships as a child. In fourth grade is when I moved from Illinois to Indiana. And in fact, when I first moved, we didn't even have our house in Indiana. So every morning my mom would drive me from Indiana or from Illinois across the border to Indiana to school and I would start to get really nervous. I was 
the new girl. I knew nobody. I didn't even have, you know, a house in the state yet. So it all felt very scary to me. Um, the first couple of days were brutal. They were on the playground by myself. You know, they were at the lunch table, not talking to anybody. And as time went on, I did in fact meet a friend. The thing is, is that she already had a best friend. And as would happen in fourth grade with very, you know, immature relationships, I was seen as a threat. Long story short, what happened is though I was welcomed into this little dyad, I was also picked on in many ways. And because I had, quote, no other friends, meaning they were all still in Illinois, I subjected myself to this over and over again. So we would have sleepovers and they would say, let's play hide and seek. And they would go hide and not come back. Um, And I think about that now and I, I realize I've learned over the years to give myself real self-compassion for how traumatic that could be as I was trying to build trust with people, with girls, and and find these new friendships to be treated in such a way. My mom told me once that it was at a choir concert at our local mall that she watched from the audience as these two girls stood behind me and made fun of me. So they were using nonverbals behind me, and she saw all of it, and She told me when I was older that it was the most gut-wrenching moment for her as a mother to watch. So these are two experiences or examples with relationships and or friendships in my life that have impacted how I, quote unquote, do friendship today. So the hard part, and this is where our work comes in, is that we see our perceptions through our attachment style as the reality. This is something I work on with students in my communication classes all the time, because if we need to understand communication, we have to understand perception. And when I taught in person, the the first thing I would do to help understand this is is I would scan the class and I would ask somebody who had glasses to come up and join me in the front of the classroom. I would then say, let's exchange our glasses. So I wear glasses. And this would be an opening to how we talk about perception, right? Glennon Doyle also coined this in a way of describing it as perspectacles. So naturally, the student would put on my glasses, I would put on theirs, and everything was blurry. We see things in our lives through our own prescriptions, right? And these are made up of things like socioeconomic status, gender, age, our experiences, culture, race. So it makes perfect sense that when I put on someone else's glasses, life feels blurry to me. The point is, and what we have to remember about showing up in friendships, is that there are other prescriptions or perceptions out there. We tend to think that what we see is the only reality. And that can cause a big riff in how well we understand other people's reactions. To translate this into what I like to call coach speak, the way that we perceive events is impacted by all of these things and can be better understood in how we think about a situation. So 
let's say there's an argument or a disagreement with a new friend. To use Brene's language, we can keep our perceptions in check by using the phrase that she has made so popular and I think is so powerful and I share with every class and every client. And it is to look at our thoughts or our perceptions through the phrase, the sentence stem of the story I'm making up about this conversation or the story that I'm telling myself about this interaction is, and I'm going to fill it in with a hypothetical here so you can understand, the story I'm telling myself about this conversation is that when you said, I don't want to talk about it anymore, it meant that you don't blank. Because of our history in relationship, how we fill in that blank is going to look very different. And it's important to understand. Dr. Franco says attachment style is at the basis for many of our perceived or go-to thought patterns. So for example, she says, when we assume others will disappoint us, judge us, when we're vulnerable, now you can see why I started the journey through this idea of understanding friendship with Brene's landscape on vulnerability because it is the foundation. Or turn us down when we need support, attachment is at, is at play. Or when we allow people to only see our strong side or our jolly side or our sarcastic side, attachment style is at play. So attachment is how we get through the unknown, the vagueness of friendship or what we project in those moments. Essentially, our brain fills in the gaps. Our brain is a storytelling machine, and the problem is, or the gift is, that those stories aren't always the truth. And it can be really cool to start digging around in there and start building these new neural pathways to help build new, new stories. Now, the second part of this book is about how to actually make friends. The first step is taking initiative, and again, can't harp on this point enough. In midish life, we can't expect friendships to just be organic anymore. They take work. We have full lives. We don't just show up for snack time or go to school and sit in class and play on the playground and come home and play with our friends. You know, many of us have children, multiple jobs, pets. We're caring for others. We're trying to take care of ourselves. When I moved to Seattle, I met with a lot of, of people who I thought, oh, she could be a great friend. And I got a lot of, yeah, let's get coffee from these possible new friends. So I waited and I waited. And because of my anxious attachment style, when I didn't get the text or the call, I just assumed that they really weren't that into me. If I would have taken the advice from this book, which wasn't written then yet, I would know that I have to take initiative. We have to try. We have to believe that we can get closer to people if we make this effort. So we can stop assuming that a friendship should happen without any effort, right? Marissa talks about the US cultural messaging in the culture that it is our path to find romantic love, get married, have kids, the end. And we are fed 
this scenario in the movies we watch and the shows we watch in the love story. It's kind of the end all be all of where we need to be. This is problematic on so many levels, but really most importantly, because research shows that having friendships can actually increase the satisfaction in romantic relationships. So think about it with me. Imagine all of your shit being put on on one person, on your romantic person. All of your insecurities, all of your worries, all of your to-dos, everything in life that's happening to you, you only have this single person. On that alone, we can see how a romantic partner that's too much for just one person, one relationship. And if we don't have other areas in our life to experience joy or ask for help or share in pain, the relationship can start to get really heavy. So Marissa says the first thing to do, which is so hard for me, and I get that, but I've been trying it out, is to assume people like you. Before I read this book, I don't think I believed that the opposite was necessarily true. So I don't think I walked around meeting people and thinking they they hate me, but I definitely went into relationships feeling like I had to earn their liking somehow by I don't know, you know, doing something, being something. My my natural assumption wasn't just to be liked. So another tip in this chapter is to say hello. And this one made me laugh out loud when I read it because it's been really cool experiencing some of this research by being a Midwesterner at heart, born and raised, and then moving to the West Coast in Seattle and then coming back. So my Midwest heart loves this idea of just say hello. It's really important. It can lead to so much. I truly believe that. I will never forget when I first moved to Seattle This was a huge issue for my husband and I. We were dating at the time, but I say hello to everybody. We would be walking down the street and every single person I passed, I'd say, hey, good morning. Hi, how's it going? We'd be in the line at the grocery store. Oh, that looks good. Hey, hi. Oh, excuse me. And he he actually said after a couple weeks of me living there, do you have to say hi to everybody? And I'm like, doesn't it just make you feel good? So... Saying hello actually does matter, right? It, it's an opening ground for connection, conversation. So some other tips from this chapter are to keep showing up. And this is something that you would tell your kids. Try, try again. Be the friend that you want and express vulnerability. This is an entire chapter in and of itself. Franco says, how to trust friends without feeling weak. So she really digs into some of the myths that Brene talks about in her own research about the misconception that vulnerability is weakness. So if we go to Brene's definition, vulnerability is known as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. And as she says so powerfully, to be alive is to be vulnerable. Here is what else she says that is a huge foundation for who we are and how we are as friends. Vulnerability is not winning or losing. It's having the courage to show up and be seen even when we have no control over the outcome. It's not weakness. It's our greatest measure 
of courage. So in the book, Marissa talks about the negative effects of suppressing feelings and discussing a Stroop task study. So this applies more towards avoidantly attached folks who regularly remember, I imagine, the football player kind of putting their arm out. So they regularly suppress feelings and the result is the surest way to be consumed by our own thoughts is to actually try to push them away. So suppression doesn't work. Um, Bernay talks about this in her work as, you know, when she looks at trying to push down or not pay attention to shame, she says it will metastasize and find its way out in other forms, in other ways. So for example, if you're suppressing for feelings in let's say your romantic relationships, there's a chance that then that those hard feelings are coming out in your platonic friendships. So it's important to be aware of that. Other aspects of the book are to pursue authenticity. Now, psychologist Susan Harder says this means owning one's personal experiences, be they thoughts, emotions, needs, wants, preferences, or beliefs. This is the reason I wanted to build a place for us to gather outside of the podcast, because our stories not only matter, but we have the power to own those stories, all of them. It means that we're looking at all of the parts of us. It doesn't mean we're defined by them. I am not defined by my anxiously attached style. It is a part of me. And when we start to grab all of those parts of us and really examine how they impact who we are today, we become stronger in knowing ourselves and stronger in our ability to know and understand others. Okay, then there's a chapter about taking the chaos out of conflict. And this is so important because just like any other relationship, it is natural that there will be conflict in friendships. It is not a bad thing. We'll talk about this in later episodes, specifically about anger as an emotion, as well as looking at John and Julie Gottman's new book, How to Fight Right. In each takeaway session of Marissa's book, she does remind us that not all friendships are worth conflict, and sometimes we need to take a step back to evaluate if we want to stay in a relationship. And now I want to ask you, in middish life, how many of you are holding on to friendships you've had because they've been your, quote, forever friends? Because it just is. Because it's how it's always been. How many of these friendships are serving you still? How many of us are holding on to friendships even when they don't serve us anymore? Breaking up is freaking hard to do, but when we are stretched so thin during this middish part of our lives, I want you to think about the friends that you have and that you really do love and how much they bring to your life. Think about the folks who are in your orbits, who you think, gosh, I might want to try connecting deeper with. And now you're, you're gaining some tools on how you can do that, as well as considering what can get in the way of how you do it. 
And then I want you to think about the friendships that are no longer serving you. If we hold on to the toxic folks in our life, we may be energetically blocking new friends from our lives simply because we aren't making the room or the time to find them. I hope that this episode has given you some practical tools. Most of all, I hope that you understand that your past experiences in relationships and from your caregivers has a huge impact on how you show up today and is really worth examining. And again, head over to kindredandbrave.com, click join our Kindred and Brave Project community, and you'll be able to hop in. You'll get tons of resources, including some attachment style testing. So you'll be able to figure out which attachment style you can identify as and additional resources and conversation on how to grow into finding our friendships. I can't wait for episode three, where we talk more about the skills we need to do this. I wanna add a self-compassion card at the end of today's conversation, because as we do this hard work and we uncover some of the things about ourselves that might feel difficult or heavy, it's important to meet ourselves with self-compassion. So this card says, the company you keep. They say you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Whose positive energy can you spend more time around today? And I urge you to send that person a message, write them a letter, leave them something on the doorstep, and just let them know why their friendship is so important to you. Have a great day.